Net proceeds from our show, Sports Medicine Weekly, go to support orthopedic research at Rush through the liveactivenow.org fund. I'm Steve Cashel, along with Dr. Nick Verma this week, subbing for Dr. Brian Cole. Dr. Verma is the head team physician for the Chicago White Sox, specializes in shoulders, knees, and elbows. Orthopedic surgeon, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. Our producer board operator is Shane Reardon. Coordinating producer is Teresa Ann Seeger. Time for our Ask the Doctor segment, always a staple of the show. We always end each show with our Ask the Doctor segment segment. You can submit your questions to our website on sportsmedicineweekly.com. Go to the homepage and you can see our picture. Dr. Cole and I on the right side of the homepage and click on the link and you can ask the doc a question. Got some good ones for you, Doc Verma, this week. Here we go with the first one. This is about BMI, body mass index. I want you to explain that. But first, Dolores has this question for you, Dr. Verma. What does your BMI have to be? That's one question. Then she says, lots of studies I have signed up for. You have to be a certain BMI. How do these research studies expect people to participate to get help if there's certain restrictions? So let's let's start with some basics, uh, Steve. You know, let's start with the definition. Yep. BMI is body mass index, and basically what it is is just a measure of your weight over your height. So it allows us to normalize your weight based on your height, right? Because okay. you can imagine the normal weight for somebody who's six foot two is markedly different than the normal weight for somebody who's five foot five. Sure. And um, when we do that, we get a number that generally falls somewhere between fifteen and say thirty five. And if you think about definitions. Generally, you want your BMI to be somewhere between 18 to 25 would be considered a normal range. Okay. Between 25 and 30 would be considered overweight. And then as you get over uh, 30, it would be considered obese. And then some people would define over 35 as morbidly obese. Wow. Okay. And the reason that's important uh, for us, particularly as you go to this research purposes, is we know that body mass index, i.e. patients that are overweight or obese, have... Uh, higher rates of complications and worse outcomes following a surgery. So if you take somebody who's having, let's just take a cartilage procedure or a knee replacement, if you have a high BMI, you're going to be at higher risk for a complication associated with that surgery. And we know that your outcome after that surgery is not going to be as good as somebody who's of a normal weight distribution. And that's important for research because you can imagine that what we try to do in a research study is to really control all of the variables so that we can really assess the outcome of the specific variable we're interested in. So if we're interested in a new injection to treat arthritis, we want to try to control all the other variables of the patients that are enrolled in that study so that we can specifically assess the response to that injection. And what happens is if we have patients in one group that have a very high BMI and patients in another group that have a more normal BMI, that's a factor that's uncontrolled for that can skew the outcome of the study to make it look like either the injection's not performing or overperforming, but it simply has to do with the fact that the two patient groups were different. Makes sense. So that's why we try to control that factor. And usually in most of these studies, the BMI cutoff is 30 um, for enrollment into the study, just so we don't have that as an extraneous factor that may influence the results. All righty. Dolores, thanks so much for your question. Again, it's our Ask the Doctor segment. You can go to our website, sportsmedicineweekly.com. And on our homepage, click on the link underneath the picture of Dr. Cole and I. But Dr. Nick Verma is subbing for Dr. Cole this week. Here's our next question, Dr. Verma. Does enjoying a recovery snack after training actually have an impact on the next day's exercise session? 
This is something we all can relate to, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think I think there's two questions here. Really, is is does enjoying a snack help you in terms of your recovery? And number two is, are there good snacks and bad snacks? Right? Sure. Because I'm sure that there are. Uh, we all know that there are snacks that are appropriate to eat after exercise, and other snacks that are probably not going to be great, such as high sugars, um, um, really high carbohydrate levels, et cetera. So I think there have been a number of studies that have looked at this, and if the snacks are used appropriately uh, following an exercise event and you're basically trying to re-provide your body with the calories that it needs during the recovery phase that occurs in the first 1 to 12 to 24 hours after an exercise program, then that's certainly going to set you up well for, um, for the next bout of exercise or athletic performance that you have the next day. And this is no different than what we do with our athletes um, at, at a professional level. Right? The two things that we look for on the ins and outside is making sure that we're controlling their calories and, and, and quality calories. And number two is the hydration status. And so I think if you are staying on top of those things in terms of taking in the appropriate calories over the appropriate time frame during and after exercise and making sure that you hydrate and rehydrate during and after exercise, those are the two things that are going to do uh, the most good in terms of um, helping you recover and be prepared for the next workout the next day. Since you're the White Sox head team physician, uh, I know you're there for a lot of games, obviously. Do these players ever eat during the game? Is it all seeds and bubble gum? Or I know there's a little bit of a, you guys have a, obviously a, uh, a snack area, so to speak, a healthy snack area back yep. next to the clubhouse, right? Yep. Behind the dugout. Are guys going back there? I mean, do, do yeah, guys th- eat or normally just at the end? I, I think that, um, you know, baseball is a little bit of a different sport compared to, say, football or basketball, where there's kind of short bursts of physical activity yeah. and there's downtime. For example, a pitcher has, you know, what is it, 15 to 20 minutes of downtime um, during an inning when the the alternate team is um, is pitching. And so it's not unusual for them to have like a, a nutrition bar or a banana or something like that just to keep their energy level up. I wouldn't say that they would go in and eat a meal sure. um, between innings, but but certainly for them to have some form of a snack during a game or if a game's going into extra innings or something like that is not uncommon. Um, but we do make sure that they have a structured meal before, you know, generally somewhere between an hour and a half before the game um, and then a meal after the game. And how about those meals after the game? I mean, you guys control. Obviously, sometimes they're jumping on a plane after a three-game or four-game series, right, and going yep. to the next city. Worst time to eat, right, midnight. But uh, I, I traveled with the Bulls for five years, and um, guys, for the most part, um, had, you know, something to eat because Absolutely. they're hungry after a game and there's not anything usually in the locker room. They're out. They have to get jump in the shower. They got to get dressed. They got to jump in their car and they got to go to the airport. And uh, usually on those planes, uh, they're trying to find something to put in their Absolutely. system because they just played a you know, two and a half hour basketball game. You know, and we're fortunate, obviously, now at the professional level, we have nutritionists that come in and actually design the menus on a day in, day out basis to make sure that we're giving them the right stuff. Um, and we've got the full uh, complement of, of clubhouse guys who make sure that that food is readily available the minute the game is over. They can get their food, they can get their shower, they can get on their way, and, and um, many times they're catching a flight to, you know, whatever city they're headed to. So in the professional level, we certainly have it kind of timed down to the minute to make sure that they get what they need and uh, get to their next destination. Good deal. It's Dr. Nick Verm. I'm Steve Cashel. It's Sports Medicine Weekly on this Saturday morning, final segment of the show, coming up soon here on The Score Inside the Clubhouse with Bruce Levine and Matt Spiegel. But we got a few more minutes here. A couple more questions, and here's another question that came in for you. Dr. Verma, what role can parents play in keeping their child safe before or after having a concussion? 
What a great question. I mean, it's such a timely question, right, with, with uh, us uh, our, our being in the football season right now. We're seeing this at a professional level with, um, with guys missing uh, time due to concussion or head injuries. Uh, I think there's two things here. Number one is in terms of what can we do to keep our kids safe. Unfortunately, there's really no way to take concussions completely out of a contact sport. Um, you know, they're most prominent in, in football, probably second most in hockey, and then we see them less frequently in uh, ba- in basketball and then baseball. Um, obviously, there's a lot of research that's being done to look into things like helmet design. There's a lot of uh, education that happens now uh, from the coaching staff to make sure that kids are being taught how to tackle appropriately. But um, but as we've learned, you know, the, the sport is moving so quickly and the athletes are, are so much bigger and faster now that there's just no way to make that risk zero. And so I think part of understanding is uh, that if, you're, if your child is going to play a, a contact sport, there is a risk of a head injury. The second part of that question is probably even more important, is what do you do once your child has had a head injury? Yeah. And I think the, the biggest thing here is to make sure that you're the advocate for your child, right, and that they're not going back to play until it's uh, deemed safe and they're really at not, no risk of having a, su- a subsequent injury. So what would I recommend doing? Number one is if they have a concussion or even a suspicion of a concussion, just like at the major league level or at the NFL level, they're done for the day. They're not going back and playing. If you look at uh, football today, we have independent physicians who are in the stands and are screening every play for any risk of a concussion. If there's an athlete that even uh, seems like they were involved in a play where a concussion could be involved, they signal down to the team physicians, and that athlete comes off the field and gets a complete assessment until they're deemed 100% sure that a concussion has not happened. So, you know, we don't have that at the high school level, and that's, you know, you are the advocate in the stands for your child. So if you have a risk or a concern that your child has sustained a concussion, that child comes off of the field until they're appropriately evaluated and a concussion can be ruled out. And if you cannot rule out safely a concussion, they're not playing the remainder of that game. And so I think that's the best thing that you can do on game day to help support your child. After that, well, it's making sure they get the right assessment. And fortunately, in Illinois, there's now a law that says that a, a, um, a high school athlete or a, a, an adolescent athlete who sustains a concussion has to be cleared by a medical professional prior to going back to sport. So that means that you get them in to see the right individuals. We certainly have um, specialists in concussion at Midwest Orthopedics. I know many of the other orthopedic groups or neurology groups around town also offer this service. There are ways that we can screen kids to make sure that they're functioning well cognitively. We can then test them to make sure that they don't have recurrent symptoms as they go back uh, and begin physical exertion. And we can make sure that when they go back, we've created the safest environment to do so. So I would say number one is be diligent about um, high level of concussion uh, suspicion on game days. And number two, if a child has sustained a concussion, make sure they get the proper medical evaluation prior to going back. All right, final question of the show comes from our producer, Shane Reardon. So, guys, we just got absolutely hammered with our first major snowstorm of the season this past week, you know, Sunday into Monday. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. I see a lot of, I'll say elderly gentlemen, shoveling when maybe they shouldn't, when maybe they should hire a neighbor kid. Um, How can these guys best prepare themselves to shovel large quantities of snow without injuring a back, without injuring a shoulder? Because you hear of a lot of... Old men and women suffering heart attacks right. from shoveling heart attack snow, big heavy snowflakes, and that's what we had yep. Sunday into Monday. How can they prevent that? Should they just not shovel at all? Should they hire a small kid to do it? Or are there ways they can shovel without getting those injuries? Yeah, of course. Well, you know, 
A back and a shoulder is one thing. You know, that's something that generally is temporary and can be treated. The heart attack is the one that you clearly want to avoid in that situation. Steve, have you ever had a stress test? Are you at the age yet I have. that's been done? Oh, yeah. On the treadmill? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, when you go out and shovel snow and it's not something you're used to doing, that's a stress test, yeah. right? All of a sudden, you're going from a level of relatively physical dormancy to now exerting yourself over a period of 30 to 45 minutes where you're going to get your heart rate up to 80 or 90% of its maximal level. You're essentially putting yourself through a stress test when you go out and shovel snow. The problem is that twofold. Number one is you have to be able to recognize what your physical capabilities are and what your level of physical fitness is. Uh, number two, you have to make sure that you're doing it in a smart and safe way, which is if you're not used to doing physical activity, that you're not going out and trying to work for an hour period of time, but you're taking breaks in between, making sure that you're hydrated properly, making sure that you're not um, experiencing symptoms. And then the third thing is obviously if you have anything like chest pain, shortness of breath, feeling like you've got heaviness or fatigue in your arms, those are all signs that you may be having some form of what we call angina, which is basically heart pain related to lack of blood supply. And you want to make sure that you stop. Uh, you probably want to pop an aspirin and seek medical attention immediately. So really the key here is making sure that you're, you're physical function is uh, up to the level that's required to shovel snow, and then being aware of the warning signs that can signal that something is a problem. All right. And Shane said, hire a small kid or a big kid, just tip them properly, right? That's, that's the best answer. Exactly. We're out of time. Thanks so much, Dr. Nick, for sitting in this week. Really appreciate your help. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Nick Verma. Many thanks to our producer, Shane Rudin. Our coordinating producer is Teresa Ann Seeger. also want to thank David Cole for managing the website and our business operations, as well as Samantha Smith from Midwest Orthopedics at Raj. For Dr. Nick Verma, I'm Steve Cashel saying so long. Thanks for listening to Sports Medicine Weekly here on 670 The Score. Up next, Inside the Clubhouse with Bruce Levine and Matt Spiegel. Talk with you again next Saturday at 8 a.m. Have a great Saturday and Sunday, everybody. Take care.